You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. So, uh, welcome to Redemption Church. If you're new here, we're glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. We are a community of Jesus that's pursuing connection and redemption through grace and sharing and exploration. Um, What we hope this means for you is that this is really and actually a safe place for you to be included, invited, to be enfolded into the community of God. If you would like some more information about that, you can fill out one of those cards in front of you, drop it in the back, and one of our pastors will be in touch with you later this week. We'd love to get coffee with you, hear a little bit more about your story, um, get to answer any questions that you might have. So I, (laughs) uh, I don't know, maybe this will shock some of you. Maybe it will be like, oh yeah, no, that all checks out. I, uh, I surf. Um, I say that, and a lot of times we were in Texas, we're in Houston, people here serve, like S-E-R-V-E. No, no, it's S-U-R-F. You can actually do that in Texas. You can actually do that in Galveston. It's usually really good when it's like 42 degrees outside, which is why you've never seen it or experienced it. Um, But a couple days after Christmas, when that really nasty cold front, or the second really nasty cold front blew in, the surf was, was pretty big, and so it had been a while since I'd been out. This is kind of my escape. It's a way to connect with nature and uh, just kind of be alone. I'm an introvert. Um, and so I go out. It had been a really long time since I had been surfing, a couple of months. It had been over a year since I had surfed in a wetsuit. It had been a couple of weeks since I had done any sort of strenuous activity. You might be able to see where this is heading. Um, well, the surf was big for Texas, right? Nothing like what California is dealing with right now where like half of it is underwater. <laughs> But like the surf was big in Texas, and so if you've been to Galveston, you, you know that there's not like a single line where the waves break and then it's just nice calm ocean. It's like waves and waves and waves and waves and waves, and so I'm paddling out, and I'm paddling, and I'm paddling, and I'm fighting through whitewash after whitewash after whitewash after whitewash, and it's cold, and I'm miserable, and I'm all of a sudden realizing, man, I'm so out of shape, and man, I'm very much feeling like I'm 40, and man, I'm very much feeling like it's been a very long time since I've done this. And so I stop to take a breather, and I look back, and I realize, oh my gosh, I am so far out. Texas is the worst place to surf ever. Like really far away from the shore, here comes another set, and I'm trying to paddle through it. And if you can just get through the set to the other side, like everything kind of calms down. And it's peaceful, and it's quiet, and the water is kind of calm and serene. But to get there, it was paddling and paddling and paddling and paddling, and all of a sudden, as I am doing this, I realize I'm, like, really fatigued. I'm actually pretty cold at this point. 
man, if I lost my surfboard right now, like I think I, like literally I think I would die. No one else had paddled out yet. I was hundreds of meters offshore. I'm like, I'm not, I cannot swim back on my own. Like I do not have it in me. I can barely, with the help of this life-saving device that it had become in that moment, I can barely like get out to the, you know, 25 yards out to where things will calm down. And I just had this thought of like, oh my God, do not lose your board. You have a family. <laughs> Gabby sitting here going like, wait, what? What do you, excuse me, you did what? Um, I'm probably making this a little more dramatic than it actually was. I continued paddling. I made it through the white water. We made it out to some like calm water. I did not lose my board. It was very securely attached to me by an eight-year-old leash, which is probably about seven years too old. But nevertheless, I was fine. But reflecting on, and like I had a fun time, and it was actually enjoyable. You're like, yeah, it sounds like a real good time. Um, but I was reflecting on it later, and I realized, like, man, this is such an appropriate metaphor for my life right now. I'm just paddling and paddling and paddling and paddling and, like, going nowhere and too far away to turn back, but not really getting to where you think you, can, you should be able to get to, to, able, to be able to have some, like, peace and some serenity and some just rest. And then I realized, like, oh, my gosh, like, this is where so many of y'all probably are right now. Just like, I'm just trying to stay afloat right now. And if I could just get there, I don't know if I have enough energy to get there, but if I could just get there, then maybe I could have some rest. And then all of a sudden, here comes another set. And it pushes you further away from where you think you should be. And it exhausts you and it tires you even more. According to The Economist, I don't read it, I Googled it. <laughs> Wow, this guy, a renaissance man, he surfs and reads The Economist. No, I don't. Um, but since March of 2020, the world has experienced 16 to 20 million excess deaths. What that means is 16 to 20 extra deaths that on average we were not expecting to happen since 2020. And, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to figure out, wait, how many people have died because of COVID? Like maybe not because they had COVID, but like because of a, a global pandemic, how many people have actually died because of this thing? Right, and we can't be precise with this, but 16 to 20 million people. The World Health Organization um, has the number of people that have died directly because of COVID at 7 million. So we're at almost two to three times that number who have possibly died because of the pandemic. And I realize that like at this time, we probably are living in significant pan pan pandemic fatigue, but isn't that exactly the point? That we are living in, a, in a, a point in the history of our lives, in the world, where 16 million people just vanished off the face of the earth like that, and we're supposed to just go on and live our lives? Not to even mention the stuff that you and I are personally enduring, are personally going through, are personally having to carry while the world around us is falling apart. We're tired. Wave after wave after wave keeps crashing over us. How do we exist in this place? Right, because there is the question of, well, if, if we can just get here, then things will be different. But we're not there 
yet, and there's no guarantee that we will ever get there in our lifetime. What if this is all there will ever be, like for you, right? That whatever state you're existing in, whatever state of stress or chaos or health or whatever, like what if this is it? I know. Happy New Year. <laughs> I feel like I'm such a Debbie Downer. Um, so for the first time in most of our lives, probably all of our lives, at least in the United States of America, we are now moving into some sort of like things aren't just expected to get better. Like for the first time, the, the millennials are going to be less well off than their parents, right? Statistically speaking. Like this is the first time since like World War II that we've all had to like take a beat and go, whoa, 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 wait a second. The world is a very different place than we thought it was. How in the world do we exist, much less flourish in a place like that? So the good news is, is that we're actually in a place that the people of God have more often than not found themselves in. That if you look at the history of Israel, if you look at the history of uh, the church, more often than not, they have not found themselves in positions of power and prosperity, right? Uh, I'm not talking about like the uh, political version of the church. I'm talking about the actual reality of God's people. And so we find ourselves in a very, situ- a very similar situation that the church has existed in for most of its existence. And so the question is, what, what did they know that we could glean from? What were they hoping in and clinging to that we could like somehow learn from, internalize, maybe use to help us in this state? So to start the new year, we're, uh, I don't know if y'all remember, but back at the beginning of the school year, we started our year of hope. And most of what we've done since then, whether it was obvious or not, has been redirecting us back towards hope because, my God, we need some hope right now. And so what I thought would be appropriate for us to begin the new year with is looking at uh, what I think is the most hopeful chapter in the entire Bible, which I think and believe pretty firmly and I'm staking my life on contains the most hopeful idea that I have ever encountered and that I think you will ever encounter. And so we're going to sit in Romans chapter 8, and we're going to explore the reality of how what Jesus has done does not just affect our future, but explodes into our current, present, chaotic, and messy reality. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 8. We're going to spend seven weeks walking through this single chapter The other reason we're doing this is we've taken um, a lot of time to do some thematic stuff and some broad view stuff. I want us to slow down and actually just sit in uh, some scripture for a second. What I want to encourage you to do over the next seven weeks is read this chapter, reread this chapter, pray this chapter, memorize this chapter, meditate on this chapter, try and internalize what Romans is trying to to say to us. We begin in Romans chapter 8. We'll look at the first four verses today. Chapter 8, verse 1. I'm reading out of the NASB 2020. Um, It does some things that I really like here. Any translation that you use will give you the main gist and you'll be good to go. So read the one uh, that you'll actually read and that you can understand. That's what's always best. 
Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 2. Or sorry, verses 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So we, uh, we hear that. There's no condemnation. And I think most of us in the room are hearing something very specific that has absolutely nothing to do with global pandemics. But I want to give you some context because I think we need to rehear verse 1. So Romans 8 is concluding a major section that was begun back in Romans chapter 5. So Romans is making this grand argument of this is what Jesus has done in the world. This is how Jesus has upended and exploded reality. And here's why it is very, very good news. Chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 are the heart of that like argument. Chapter 8 is like the conclusion. It is the, hey, based on everything I've just said so far, here we go. Here is the best part of all of this. And he begins this section with, hey, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And yet when we hear that there's no condemnation, how many of us are hearing that morally? How many of us are hearing that, hey, you've done some bad things and God's pretty angry at you, but it's cool. He'll let it go. And the problem with that is not that it's not true, it's that it's too narrow. And a moral good news, or sorry, a moral understanding of condemnation has led us to believing in some sort of moral good news. And so the solution to our problem is, well, I just need to behave myself. My my problem is my behavior. I just need to change my behavior, and then me and God will be good to go. God will go from being angry at me to happy with me. And then we go through a pandemic, and we're wondering, why in the world is God so angry at me? Things aren't going well. Right, so there is some truth to this, but this is a very small sliver of the gospel. And so most of you have heard this in some form of like, hey, uh, God is angry at you, but it's okay because he will now credit you or attribute to you uh, righteousness. There's like an accounting trick that God is going to do. There's this imputation of Christ's righteousness that's going to be given to you, right? And I'm not saying that that's not true. I'm saying that that's not the whole story. Because guess what he also does? He actually and really does something tangible in you and for you right here and right now. It's not just a ledger. It's actual and real. And so when we hear condemnation, we assume Paul is talking about God's condemnation of us to hell. Right, if you've grown up in some of the circles and read the Bible the way that I've grown up reading the Bible, what we hear is there's no condemnation, that means you don't go to hell. But if you read chapters 5, 6, and 7, he never mentions hell. So wait a second, what's Romans actually saying? So if you look at Romans 5 in the immediate context of Romans 8, condemnation is the wages of sin. And if you grew up in Awana or doing like the Bible sword drill thing or, you know, doing the Romans road, then you know that the, the wages of sin is, hey, look at y'all, look at that, bunch of Bible nerds. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. 
not the punishment for sin. The wages of sin is death. When you sin, here is what you are earning for yourself. Uh, Think of it this way. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. The condemnation is not hell. It is rather the death sentence that we have brought upon ourselves and the world. Some translators translate there is now no condemnation as there is now no longer a death sentence for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now all of a sudden, in the context of a global pandemic, we begin to understand a little bit more about what Jesus is offering us right here and right now. There is now no longer a death sentence for you in a world where 20 million people just disappeared. Our peace-breaking actions and behavior and dispositions have brought death and decay into our world and onto our own selves. This is what chapter 5 is saying. If you want to know what you've earned for yourself, if you want to know what you have produced and built, what type of empire do you have, what happens at the end of your life? die. That's your reward. This is what you have bought for yourself. But the action of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ is an action towards us and for us, not against us. Right, so if condemnation is God's throwing us into hell, then God is saving us from himself by himself and through himself, and that starts to get kind of strange and weird. But rather, if condemnation is the death sentence that we have brought upon ourselves and into the world because of our behavior and intrinsic uh, sinfulness, then now God is not like, well, I'm angry at you, but I'm going to do this weird like accounting trick. Okay, cool. We're good now. But instead, it's God's initiative on our behalf towards us and for us to do something that we are unable to do for ourselves. Wait, how do I know this? Look at Jesus. What is Jesus' disposition towards sinners? What is Jesus' disposition towards his enemies? What does Jesus think about the least and the worst and the lost? Oh, yeah, but that's Jesus. Jesus is the fullest and the clearest revelation of God. We know what God is like because of Jesus. And the God revealed most clearly in Jesus shows us a God of love who reaches towards us and for us, who comes to us and works towards our healing and wholeness who's brokenhearted when we choose violence and sin because of, not because he's like, well, now you've screwed it all up and I just hate you for it. No, it's the opposite. It's because he loves us. This is not a God who has positioned himself as estranged from us, but rather this is a God who has come down to a people who have estranged themselves from him. And he reaches towards them anyways. Right, and this is exactly what Romans 5 does. 
while we were enemies, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ reconciled himself to us. I actually flipped those two, but you get the gist. And so many of us have understood that our condemnation, our death sentence, is one of hell because of our bad behavior. Oh, so then the solution is, well, we get out of hell and we go to heaven instead, and in the meantime, we ought to behave rightly so that God's not angry with us. Right now, we are collectively confronted with death and sin in a way that none of us have ever collectively had to confront it before. Um, So someone was, I was listening to some random podcast this last week, and they were talking about how NPR had tweeted out when the Ukraine war broke out. Uh, Like, hey, look, there's a lot of really dramatic and violent and heartbreaking images going around Twitter and social media. Don't forget, take take a wellness break and just distance yourselves a little bit um, from these images, right? And, and that's like a, that's good advice. But the people in Ukraine who are still on Twitter and social media are like, yeah, and I'm in a bomb shelter, so what do I do? And I heard that, and I'm so struck by that. That is our reality right now. You and I are in a bomb shelter in a way that most of us have never been in before. And even if we have personally been through some things that are worse, we have never collectively been through anything like this in our lives. And it is a low, sustained grief and trauma, not to mention the own personal grief and trauma that you and I are dealing with. But God's action on our behalf is not merely forensic. It's not merely an accounting trick. God is not just, and I'm not saying he's not, but I'm saying he is not just considering you as being different than you really are. Instead, God has actually and really done something for us in Christ. Look at verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Right? There's a, a lot of like, whoa, what's being said here? Um, in short, I, I want you to hear this. Right? There's a lot of conversations that we could have about the, the next three verses. God's Spirit is God's yes to you. God's Spirit is God's yes to you. How do I know that God loves me? He has given you himself by his spirit. How do I know that God is going to actually change me? He has given you his yes in his spirit. How do I know that God is going to resurrect me? He has given you his yes in his spirit. God's spirit is the yes and the initiation of a new world order. So we see this word law in verse 2, right? Right? through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit. And that's a terrible translation, not because it's a bad translation, but because what the Greek means by law and what we hear in law is like not necessarily the same. Most of us are hearing law as in like, hey, stop at stop signs and like don't murder people. But it can mean that, but it also can mean like law as in like if you're a scientist and you're following certain laws. And that is the extent of my science, y'all. It's been like since 10th grade that I've done any sort of uh, science class. And so when you hear the law of the Spirit, it might be better for us to hear the principle of the Spirit. 
Right? The principle of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the principle of sin and death. There is now a new world order. Something has actually changed. Before, you could only exist within the realm of sin and death, but now Jesus has done something that has brought us into a realm of life and peace and wholeness. Something has actually and really changed. We have been moved from living in a world of sin and death into a world of the life-giving spirit. How? God did it in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, right? And this, this could be taken two ways. Law here could mean like the old principle of sin and death. Or, and Paul does this, and he's doing like a play on words. Paul's the author of Romans. Sorry, I skipped that part. Um, this could also be like the law of Moses. But his point doesn't change. Whatever this old way was, it didn't actually do anything. It was powerless because it was weakened by the flesh. And so God did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. And again, tons we could go into here. What I want you to hear is God intervenes on our behalf. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Well, why can't we? There's this language that Paul uses, weakened by the flesh. So Karl Barth has this great quote. He was a German theologian. He writes a fantastic commentary on Romans that you like read a paragraph and you're like, hold on, I need to think about that for about six months. And he says, no religion, right? And what he means is like, no sort of human system, no theology or philosophy or law or right, whatever you can create and build for yourself. No religion is capable of altering the fact that the behavior of humanity is in its entirety, both good and bad, a behavior apart from God apart from the realm of spirit and life, apart from light, apart from life itself. All religion can do is expose the complete godlessness of human behavior. Right, and he's not speaking about morality versus immorality. Well, now they're all a bunch of godless heathens. They're doing bad things. His point is that even the good things we do, done on our own, apart from God, are lacking the life of the world. And so religion neither overcomes human worldliness nor is able to transfigure it. Put it this way. All of our behavior, good and bad, severed from communion with God, is unable to overcome death. You can be the best human being in the entire world. You can believe the most precise theology in the entire world. You're still gonna die. And you still have very little say in how that goes down. A good news of morality is not enough. We need resurrection. We need resurrection. Rebirth. We need to be made new. So, um, 
I've shared a little bit about my wife's um, ongoing, like, chronic health stuff. She has gotten into, like, I, I'm trying to remember what you call it. Where'd you go? There you are. I'm trying to remember what you call it. She also hates attention, so if you could all look at her right now, that'd be fantastic. I'll get in trouble for that later. Anyways, so she started doing this, like, journaling where she, like, doodles and draws and then um, also, like, just kind of writes some stuff. And she wrote something and shared it with me, and I was like, oh, my gosh, that's really, really good. So I'm giving her full credit here is basically what I'm doing. Um, But we think that the pursuit of independence will lead us to maturity. This is exactly what, what Bart is saying. You think that by pursuing, like, severing yourself from any sort of need whatsoever, being any sort of a dependent, needy, weak, impoverished person, that that is somehow going to deliver you. We think that our independence is going to somehow save us. That maturity means doing it on your own doing it yourself, but the reality is that God enfolds us into a salvation of utter dependence. It's why we begin a lot of our services with confession. We want to start with the reminder of like, hey, whatever we're doing here, we recognize that we are coming with open hands as people in need. It's why we conclude almost every single time we gather with communion is a recognition that week after week after week, we need Jesus. We are dependent on God to act and intervene, dependent on God to continue to act and intervene, even now in our present reality. And we are dependent on one another as a community of Jesus. What this means is the extent to which we will enter into communion is the extent to which we will allow ourselves to be formed by God. God transforms us in communion, by communion, in dependence on him and one another. And so our weakness means openly being vulnerable, means sharing both the good about us, but also the hard about us and the bad about us. It means letting your walls come down, being brutally honest. When we wear masks in community, it allows us to maintain some control and some independence. It allows us to put a distance between ourselves and what we want people to actually know about us. But when we do that, so often we're also doing that with God. And even subconsciously, we're putting on a mask and we're treating God as if he can't actually see and know who we really are, when if we will just let go and be the messes that we are in the presence of God and in the presence of one another, we can begin to find some real healing. Like practically speaking, this so often looks like directing the conversation towards theology or philosophy or, yeah, but what about this Bible passage? Isn't that crazy? Let's talk about that instead. Or maybe uh, this ritual or that ritual or as long as we can keep our true selves hidden, buried under pretense, hidden from God, and we think, at least, hidden from God and hidden from one another. 
So I want to give the big caveat here. Um, this does not mean you should go and share your deepest, darkest secrets with the stranger sitting next to you right now. Um, you don't know them. I'm not asking you to trust them. But you could start by asking their name, sharing yours, beginning to build a friendship and a relationship of trust. Go and join a small group and over time begin to share needs and vulnerabilities and your actual self. I know a lot of people have been hurt by oversharing and then that information being used against them. Um, verse 4 begins with this transition, the results of what Jesus has done for us. Right, This requirement that the principle of sin and death might be completed in us who did not go about life according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In short, what, what Romans is saying here is you have been liberated from this old principle that says when you behave in this way, or if you are this way, this way of sin, this way of violence, this way of breaking shalom, then all you can ever get for yourself is death. That has been shattered, and you have been invited into a new way where no matter what, not because of what you do or who you are, but because of what Jesus has done, who Jesus is, and who Jesus now says that you are, you only ever enter life and peace and wholeness. It is fulfilled in us, and so we are now characterized by a new sphere of life. And sometimes we read verse 4, and what we hear is, the requirement of the law has been met in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. As a, so you'd better, when in reality, what he's saying is, hey, look, do you want to know the types of people that the law has been fulfilled in by Christ? Do you want to know who you are in Christ? You walk according to the spirit now. This is not a command. He's not telling you, you had better do this. He is singing it over you. This is who you are now, like it or not. Even when you live in contrast to it, you walk according to the Spirit because the Spirit of God dwells in you. So you are now characterized as a creature of life and wholeness and goodness. So we who are in Christ have been moved from a life of flesh and independence and self-sufficiency and self-striving to a life in the spirit, one of dependence and grace and sharing. And it is that spirit that makes us alive. It is that spirit that liberates us. Not our flesh, not our philosophy, not our theology, not our efforts, not our religion. Okay, so I wanna, I wanna be briefly practical here. The story that Romans 8 is telling is a story of, of two resurrections. There's a resurrection that has already begun by the Spirit and is guaranteeing a future resurrection that he'll talk about at the end of the chapter. Uh, he, he spells this out pretty clearly in Romans 6. You are in Christ, and so you are a new person. There has been a rebirth. You are now no longer this old version of yourself. That old version of yourself has died. There's now a new version of yourself that has been made alive. And so this invites us into surrender. 
of letting go. Right? Religion tells us, no, no, hold on tightly, grip more, do more. The Spirit invites us to let go. And in this letting go, we can actually begin to find hope. Not because our circumstances change, change not because who we are necessarily changes, but in letting go, we allow ourselves to actually and really enter into divine love. To be loved as Jesus says that we are loved, just as we are, and not on the basis of whatever we think we have to do to earn that love. So then God is not doing something about hell here, right? And there's a whole conversation we can have about that. I absolutely will have that conversation. This is, this is not necessarily the point of Romans 8. God is doing something about sin and death. God is liberating us and freeing us from the decay and corruption and decomposition of the cosmos and is doing something about the chaos that we so readily see and combat day after day from our dirty laundry that just seems to never go away to our cancer diagnosis that we thought was gone. The relentless nature of chaos. And so we live as people in a new world existing still in the old world as we live as people of the spirit in a world of the flesh. So what does that mean? It means that our hope is that in the midst of our chronic illnesses, in the midst of our deteriorating marriages, in the midst of our broken and fractured relationships, even just in the midst of our stressful, ordinary Mondays, we would see that we have been freed and enfolded into a world and a life not characterized by sin and death, but by love and peace and wholeness. So this may not change our situation, but it changes who we are in the midst of our situation, and it changes whose we are in the midst of our situation. Because it changes who has power over us. Sin and death no longer own you. Jesus Christ owns you. So I went to visit uh, a loved one yesterday. She's old. We did Christmas with her and our two-year-old, and it was great to see, like, multiple generations together. Um, But she's old. My mom said something to me that was heartbreaking She's like, I wonder if she'll even remember this. She doesn't remember last year. I wonder if she'll remember this year. What Jesus is saying to us in Romans 8, what Jesus is saying to my grandmother here in Romans 8, is that even if you fail to be able to remember who I am, you are mine. I have given you my spirit You do not belong to declining health. You do not belong to failure. You do not belong to gender dysphoria. You do not belong to abuse or to trauma or to deteriorating relationships or to lupus or to cancer. You belong to me. I am yours and you are mine. There is no condemnation in me. There is no condemnation in me. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have and continue to liberate us. That you have done for us what we can't and maybe wouldn't or couldn't do for ourselves. 
that you have loved us in spite of ourselves and that you rejoice and sing over us as your children. In our hard situations, in our stress, in the chaos of our lives, in the pain, will you whisper to us? Will you remind us when we cry out, God, where are you? Will you tell us I'm right here? I'm with you. I'm weeping with you. I'm hurting with you. And I promise you I'm making all things new. I know you can't see it, but hold on. Hold on. I've got you. You're mine. Jesus, have mercy on us. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.